Hello everyone and welcome once again to 101 George Street, the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy and I encourage you to sit back, zone in and join me as I talk to a guest from the worlds of children's literature, storytelling and creative learning. Our guest for today is Dr Maureen Farrell. Dr Farrell is a senior lecturer at the School of Education at the University of Glasgow. Previously, she worked as an English teacher before moving into higher education to teach the next generation of teachers and educators. She is a key member of the successful MET Children's Literature and Literacy Programme at the University. Dr Farrell, Maureen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Why is children's literature important? Well, where to start? Children's literature, I think is quite a difficult thing to disentangle children's literature with learning to read. We know that learning to read literacy skills are the kind of groundbreaking forces that we need to get on in society. We need literacy skills to to function in the world of work and to function in society. Mm. We want children to learn to read and we don't want to make learning to read boring. So we want to give them good stories. But I think also children's literature has lots of rattling good stories, but it also depicts a culture. It gives us our history. It gives us our imagination and our our science fiction. It it gets us to sleep at night with our bedtime stories. We can lose ourselves in fairy tales. It is a feast for the imagination. And in this world, which is so digitally uh, focused and lockdown being a case in point where we have become utterly dependent on digital digital ways of working and ways of, of living. So there's lots of distractions, but you cannot lose yourself in a digital medium in quite the same way as you can lose yourself in a book. And if you can grab a child's attention with a, a really funny story, a really sad story, a great mystery story, you can actually engage them in flights of imagination. And I think that's absolutely essential. And it can open the door to other worlds, other countries, other times. There's a quote that talks about children's literature being both being the mirror, the window and the door. You need to be able to see yourself in the literature literature that holds a mirror up to you um, a window that lets you look through it into someone else's world and then a door in which you kind of completely immerse yourself in that world you go into that other person's world and I think that's a really interesting way to look at children's literature so you can tell by my enthusiastic and lengthy answer that I am a huge fan of children's literature I believe in the joy of reading for pleasure I believe in trying to inculcate that in our young people and if you take the teacher hat on with me what we know from research is that young adults who read up to maybe 15 minutes a day every day generally do better in education generally more often go into higher education, generally end up with a better job in life. And and it's actually statistically provable that this has happened. So for 15 minutes a day to have such benefits, why wouldn't you do it? Oh, exactly, exactly. And I think 
if you put that within the context of the lockdown, quite a few parents out there are having difficulty homeschooling their children at the moment. It's, it's yeah. on the news <laughs> at the moment. And even if it's just a case of 15 minutes sat with your child, reading them a story, or, or even better, helping them read to you and giving, giving them the patience, the time, and your patience, the time for, to allow them to do that. It has such massive benefits. It really does. Yeah. I did a, a lecture on Monday to the postgraduate uh, students in English, the ones who are going off to be English teachers in two or three months. And uh, it was about using children's literature in the classroom. And one of the slides I put up was about if a, if a child reads for one minute a day, every day for the school year, they read about 8,000 words. If they read five minutes a day, they read so many more. And then if they read 20 minutes a day, they read something like 1,800,000 words. Now, 20 minutes a day, maybe in a, in a very crowded curriculum, that's quite difficult to manage. But if you've got a book club running at, the, at lunchtime or if you've got, you know, a chance to, to build in some time, then I think you can't really go wrong with, you know, improving vocabulary. That's one of the big closing the attainment gap targets. The more you read, the more likely you are to have an extensive vocabulary. So there's tons and tons of reasons why from an educational perspective, from an identity perspective, from a personality and imaginative perspective, children's literature, children's and young adult literature is really important. Would you say there's a difference between literature and children's literature? Is there a difference? That's a really thorny question. Um, <laughs> I would argue not, but I'm quite sure that other academics would be completely unhappy with that. I think part of it's to do with the audience for children's literature. We make the assumption that children's literature has to be simple, that children's literature is somehow lesser than literature, and that it, it isn't of the same order. Now, it's really interesting. You get people like Philip Pullman, you get people like Michael Morpurgle, you get lots of children's authors um, and people like Oscar Wilde who says that he's he's writing stories for uh, the the childlike adult was it you who mentioned to me Terry Pratchett saying he was he'd been accused of writing literature and he was absolutely appalled by that now, I love that idea how dare you call me say I'm writing literature and authors I know children's authors I know I've asked them are you writing for children and nearly all of them say they're writing for themselves they write the story that they want to tell. And I've talked to other authors where I'm thinking of somebody like Jamie Johnsey, uh, who wrote a, a, a novel which he couldn't, he touted it around all kinds of adult publishers, couldn't get it picked up, repackaged it as a young adult novel. It was picked up first time and won an award. Now, why is it picked up in an award winner as a young adult novel, but not as an adult novel? And I think it's a, a huge amount to do with what academia says, what people label things as, what publishers decide is literature, and what is pulp fiction. I mean, you know, uh, holiday reading, you know, who says you can't read a big thick book while you're on holiday? I mean, I think that's a all about the labelling. And I think some of the best children's books are actually as challenging, as complex, as bewildering, as mind-blowing as any adult text. And a lot of adult texts are not as good as children's books. And that's, you know, I think children's literature can take on adult literature. And I think it is all literature. You just need to think of it as a kind of continuum with a kind of set of target audiences, perhaps. 
That's an interesting point. I know some of the most challenging books in terms of themes and ideas that I personally have ever read have been, let's just say, books for a young audience, or they were labelled as books for a young audience. Philip Pullman being a fine example, actually, or some of Neil Gaiman's books, actually. They're they're mind-blowing in terms of their complexity, and some of the books that that are called literature, and do have that literature label, are quite simplistic in terms of the narrative. Yeah, sometimes they are. Uh, but equally, simple narratives are very good literature. Oftentimes, I mean, I think this is I, I, this is what I mean about getting hung up on 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 the labels. I mean, there was a period of time when I work in a faculty of education, so I'm training teachers, and I'm training people to be teachers of primary children and teach English teachers of secondary children, and. We would always talk for, if we're preparing teachers for secondary teaching, we would be saying to them, you know, like, read read a poem, read a play, read a novel, and then deconstruct it. What are your responses? Now, in critical theory, that's called a reader response theory. But at that particular, at certain particular times within the University of Glasgow's English team, there was a thing, you never ever talked about the, the that kind of response. You always talked about the text. You never forgot that it was a text. You were absolutely discouraged from immersing yourself in the text whereas for children and young people that's the obvious thing to do is you get them engaged in the story you get them to care about the characters you get them to be want to turn the page to find out what happens next but if you come from a particular critical stance Mm. critical theory stance then you'd be saying no no that's the text that's it's you know you're not thinking of that kind of response and so i think we get hung up on labels and we get hung up on ways to analyze and my big thing and a lot there's a huge and growing movement about this uh, led particularly by professor teresa kremen at the open university where they have got a really, really big project going on called Reading Rich Pedagogies. And one of the things that they're doing is saying, reading for pleasure is important, and we need to be able to do it when we want, how we want. We need to bring adults into it. We need to bring family members into it. We need to read online. We need to read, we need to listen in in audiobooks just for the sheer pleasure of it. Nothing more, not about character analysis, not about key scenes, just reading reading a blooming good book, you know? Absolutely. I always say I was lucky enough never to study Of Mice and Men in school. (laughs) I remember reading it on a coach to Leeds and I read it in one sitting on the journey. I got on the coach, okay? Got off the coach and, and, and I was shaking. I had tears in my eyes. I was shaking to the very core. I've spoken to people and they just roll their eyes at the book. And I think it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. Yeah, I I can completely, I recognise that because speaking as a marker for exams, I have marked endless answers on Of Mice and Men. And it got to the point where if I opened an exam script and it was Of Mice and Men, I would start to twitch. (laughs) Because it was another, and if I got another quote of living off the fat of the land, I, I was ready to actually, you know, jump out a window because it was a book that's easy. It's a book that's easy to teach in inverted commas. And it's a short book, so lots of kids like it for that reason. And a lot of English teachers do, and I myself have been guilty of it in the past, of doing what I call squeezing out the juice. You know, you take a book that you really love or a poem that you really love and you look at it and you tear it to pieces and you're gonna, and by the time you're done with it, you think, I never want to see that book 
ever, 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 ever again. Now that's the difference between your response to of mice and men and something that was done in school, which has probably been absolutely steamrolled with all the work that they did on it. I had to teach students Shakespeare, but from a drama point of view, <laughs> I it, it used to say, look, just forget, everything that you've been taught, just forget everything that you've yeah. been taught in terms of textual analysis or metaphor or this, that, the other, live the words, really live it. And um, it's a different way of approaching. So the idea of, of reading for pleasure and really campaigning for that, it's a simple, simple concept, but it's really needed. And, and it's, it's got lots and lots and lots of people following it. And really, you know, the campaign is, is growing, growing, growing. At the moment, most of the people who are involved in that campaign are teachers. Mm. or academics who work in the children's literature field. Gradually, you're getting parents involved in it, but they, it's not where they would naturally go to get the information. And the problem with that is that teachers who are involved in it and who really think it's important are also faced with, and this happens both in Scotland and south of the border, a packed curriculum, people saying you have to spend X amount of hours on literacy and X amount of hours on numeracy and X amount of hours on health and well-being. And then you've got to get your social subjects and then your expressive arts, then you blah, blah, blah. And you want us to read for pleasure as well. Come on. You know, so it's about, yes, we it's really important, but it's about making a place for it in the curriculum and what I find particularly interesting I did a little bit of the of a scan of this a few years ago I started to look at curriculum documents from around the world you know the Australian curriculum the Irish curriculum Canadian curriculum as well as Scottish and so on and very very few curricula use the words children's literature now in Scotland we've got the curriculum for excellence and one of the strands thankfully is reading for pleasure. So we want them to read, we want them to read for information, we want them to read to understand and evaluate, we want them to read for pleasure. But they don't say what, and they don't say read children's literature. So it's fine to read extracts, it's fine to read poems, it's fine to read, uh, use a, a, a reading scheme which has got extracts from books or perhaps graded readers and things like that. But they don't always mention that magical phrase, children's literature. And I think they should, because I think that would give an awful lot of teachers the freedom to look more widely than the kind of quite frequently quite narrow range of books that they do look at routinely in the classroom. Is there a genre of children's literature that holds a special place in your heart? Well, basically, I'm a reader. I've been a reader since I was a tiny wee girl. I was... I was brought up by two teachers and I and a grandmother who uh, was a voracious reader herself. Um, so I ha have been encouraged to read right from young. I think you would describe me as an eclectic reader. Yeah. Uh, I read anything and everything. Starting off when I was a child, of course, I read all the Enid Blytons and I read, you know, um, Nancy Drew books and I read all, all different kinds of things. As I grew up, I began to read particular kinds of fiction. I'm a big fantasy reader. I love Tolkien and I love Pullman and I love C.S. Lewis and I love J.K. Rowling and I love all of these kind of people. And George MacDonald, huge George MacDonald fan. And of course, J.M. Barry. Well, who wouldn't? But I also love historical fiction. Really, really like historical fiction. 
and I'm a bit of a crime fan. I like a good um, gory whodunit, you know, a, a police procedural. These are the kind of ones I like as well. That's my kind of holiday reading is the gory of the better. <laughs> Listeners won't know this, but you made a face when you said crime, you're a bit of a crime fan. Why would you do that? Again, I think crime fiction gets a bit of a bad press it's kind of it's it's not considered highbrow enough it's not considered you know it's imagine that an academic being a crime fiction fan but actually i know tons and tons of academics that love crime fiction and in fact i can think of one particular professor that i know who looks the mildest mannered that you've ever met in your life and the gorier the crime fiction the better he likes it you know it's and it, so i think it's always quite interesting to kind of uh, see what people enjoy so I do like crime fiction. I particularly like American crime fiction. That's kind of one of the things that, that my guilty pleasure. <laughs> Just to pull it back to fantasy, actually. Fantasy is important for us as Mo Bray, obviously, because of, of our background and, and our connection with Jay and Barry and, and Peter Pan. Why do you think that genre of fantasy, and I'm asking this as a huge fan of children's fantasy and fantasy in general, why do you think fantasy is important? Why do you think it's so, so popular at the moment? If you look at the roots of fantasy, it comes from folklore particularly, and it comes from oral storytelling and passing on the stories round in family situations where the audience for the stories was, was multi-generational. Mm -hmm. So those folkloric, mythical, magical stories were told to everyone. And they're often quite simplistic in their original form. They often have, uh, because they're oral storytelling, and you'll have had people talking about oral storytelling, way bit more experienced in this than me. But lots of oral storytellers, in order to remember lots and lots and lots of stories, had a kind of framework for their story. So they would have a standard opening, and that worked for this kind of story, that kind of story, that kind of story. And it would have this in it, and that in it, and that in it. Now, the magical tales particularly often have a kind of structure. Three wishes, seven, the numbers three and seven come up time and time again. Scotland has a particular um, yen for fairy creatures, you know, pixies and brownies and all kinds of things like that. And again, that's to do, I think, more with people who will embrace that the imaginative quality of that. When children's literature began at the beginning with the way childhood was understood at the time, the writing for children tended to be realistic with the idea that it was about teaching them things. It was about teaching them to be good. It was about teaching them to do this and that and the next thing. Then when it changed to seeing children as having a blank slate, then it was we can influence them the way that we want to influence them. And what fantasy fiction is, it's about writing about the impossible. It's about writing about things that couldn't happen. Now, it's different from science fiction. There's a book called uh, Children's Fantasy Literature, and uh, it's Farrah Mendelssohn, and I've forgotten the other chap's name who, who is the author. But they talk about the difference between fantasy and science fiction as being fantasy is about writing the impossible. Science fiction is writing about the incredible, if you know what I mean, or making the impossible credible rather, that, that you can make, so rocket travel, time travel, things like that. The impossible fantasy makes no attempt to make it real. It, you hang up that expectation. You suspend that disbelief. You suspend the disbelief and you just say, okay, I, they can move through time, fine. How do they do it? Don't, don't know, don't care. And so I think 
children and young people accept that more readily, I think, than modern day adults. Unless you are an adult who has come up with a, a reading of fantasy literature from childhood all the way through, and then there are those people who carry on that reading into adulthood. I don't, I'm sure there are people who have come to fantasy in adulthood, but I don't know that they would embrace it in the same way as people who come up with a long-held tradition, but I have nothing on which to base that. That's, that's, I'm speculating here. I'm trying to think if I know anybody who said, because everybody I know, for example, who has read something like The Lord of the Rings in adulthood, they, they, there's no middle ground. They love it or they hate it. There's no middle ground. And you either think it's the biggest load of rubbish that they've ever read in their entire lives, or they say it's the greatest thing they've ever read in their life. And I think that does, I think fantasy does do that. I think fantasy splits people in that way. Actually, now that you, you say that, I remember recalling a conversation with my dad. Now, my dad is a huge hard science fiction fan. Speculative fiction. Uh, yes, indeed. And we occasionally have an argument about fantasy versus science fiction, which is a ridiculous argument to have, but, you know. <laughs> but good fun. But good fun. <laughs> yes. And he can't suspend the disbelief, even though he the, yeah. the novels that he reads are wildly speculative and, and fantastical in their own right. He can't make that, that suspension of, oh, dragons, okay. He needs to know why and how. <laughs> Whereas I, I don't want to know how and I don't want to know why. There's a magical gate to another world. Great, let's go through it. I don't know whether that means that... I think sometimes that people with mathematical minds prefer the science fiction genre because they like the logical problems of it. You know, they like the they like the problem-solving aspect of it. Whereas people who are uh, tend towards the more artistic and literary minds are just willing to say, okay, I'm just going with the flow. Um, and I think that might, that might be the case. And again, I'm speculating here myself. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I like science fiction too. I like some science fiction very much. Um, I love Ian M. Banks' work and stuff like that, uh, but I am much more uh, at home and much a much bigger fan of fantasy. Do you think there's again this this could be a, a prickly question, but uh, or a thorny question? But do you think there's a perception out there of children's fantasy, and has that perception changed? I think there is a perception of children's fantasy, and as I said earlier on. For those who don't know it, and they, they think of children's fantasy as being simplistic and easy and something to keep the kids entertained, you know, something like that. Um, but I think that would be wrong to say that. I think that children's fantasy has grown and developed massively. Now, remember, the study of fantasy literature is a relatively recent you know, it's in the last hundred and so years of fantasy literature as a, as a genre properly. Children's fantasy literature starts really gaining traction from about the 1920s, mm. uh, from maybe a bit before, if you count Peter Pan in it, the early, so people, um, E. Nesbitt and all of these people writing with that. And to an extent, George MacDonald writing in the 19th century and things like uh, Charles Kingsley and... Lewis Carroll and stuff like that. So you've got them starting in the 19th century. But the kind of 
adult interest in children's fantasy starts really from about the 1920s and it's about you know why why are you reading that you shouldn't be reading that you should be going on to something else now there's this idea of that but what's interesting is when you look at the development of children's fantasy that has changed and it changes in some degree according to how how society's view of childhood changes so for example childhood well, when does childhood finish? According to the law in Scotland, in Britain, it's 18. But in Scotland, you can get married at 16. You can't drive a car, but you can get married. Okay, that's an interesting one. Uh, you can be tried as an adult from 14, I think it is. What about the child soldiers in the African countries? You can be a weapon-carrying child soldier from the age of 12. Childhoods in many of the poor countries of the world finishes very, very early. They take on family responsibilities. They look after small children. They do all of these things. And then you've got what's happening in literature, which is really interesting, which is that you've got children's literature that used to be kind of like from 0 to 12, then maybe up to 0 to 14. When I was growing up, long time ago there was no such thing as young adult literature i my transition literature from children's books to adult books was agatha christie i began reading agatha christie and that was my kind of transition into adult literature and that would be about 13 14 thereabouts i, I was reading the classics because i was told to in school so we had jane eyre and um, uh, great expectations and things like that that really turned me off some classics at the time but then we start from about the 1970s to get a genre of books which subsequently become young adult books and that's and young adult books come go from about 14 probably to about 16 17 maybe 18 what's happening now is that we've got a, a, a genre of young adult fictions that are with protagonists up to early 20s and we've got a reading public of young people still in full-time education into their 20s and this is what this is now beginning to be called new adult literature now i i think that's a really interesting thing going from young adult to new adult and where does this transition occur and what does that mean and when do you become a new adult and do you have something like a bar mitzvah or something I, you know what 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 makes you what makes you a new adult but it's interesting because it means that the readership of those books is up from kind of mid-teens into early 20s and then you've got the whole I hate the term, but it, it was it was called this at one point, kidult fiction. You know, children's books that adults were reading. The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night Time, the Harry Potter books, the Philip Pullman books, things like that where publishers think, my goodness, adults are reading these books. And what they did with the Harry Potters and what they did with the Philip Pullmans is they generate new adult covers. So they then begin to target the adult audience and that says, okay, this is a children's book, but it's okay for adults to read it. And, and children's literature is like that in, in a way that children have always appropriated books that were originally not intended for children. They were intended for an adult audience, but children appropriated them, things like Robinson Crusoe and stuff like that. But equally now we've got adults appropriating children's books and and that's and that's a that's a a twentieth century phenomenon, I think. 
And that's something that I have actually noticed again. Terry Pratchett's books, his early books and his early artwork on all his Discworld books were just crazy illustrations, arms, legs, flailing everywhere. But as it became more popular and more popular, and as people grew up actually with the books and became adults themselves, and all the covers have, have changed, and they all look like proper literature books now, <laughs> grown up covers. And, you would have and... your head for saying that. He would have <laughs> your head. <laughs> it, it is something that I have noticed. Harry Potter being a fantastic example, actually. It's, it's, you know, there's, there's, if you go onto the internet, you can actually find um, the Harry Potter covers from across the world, which is really interesting. And yeah. you can see them from the original covers to the new version of the covers and this, the adult version, the stylized version. It's a, it's a, a, one of my PhD students is also a, a published children's book author and illustrator. And Get Elizabeth started on this and she, she could talk to you for hours about this. It's, it's a phenomenon. But it is about marketing. And it's about targeting an audience. And uh, it's a really interesting thing because it also is about where you shelve them in a bookshop. I went to find a book one time for something I had been asked to write. And I went to the young adult section of the book and I could not find it. Went to ask, it was in Waterstones, and said, oh no, it's in the shop, it's in the shop. And I said, well, well where is it in the shop? And it wasn't in the young people's section at all. It was in the adult fantasy section of the shop. And I have a, another colleague, another colleague and friend, the, the children's author and writer, Kathy Ford. And Kathy gets really annoyed. Now, she's a Glasgow author and she is a Scottish author and she's, she writes like that. But she gets really frustrated when her books are put into the Scottish section because she doesn't want that label per se. And yet, as someone who, as you know, has got a particular interest in Scottish children's literature, I kind of want them to be identified as being Scottish because for so long, Scottish children's literature has been subsumed into general British literature, but labelled as English children's literature. Mm. And that's the thing that, that bugs me. It's not that, I don't mind it being called British children's literature. Harvey Darton's book called Three Centuries of Children's Books in English, in England, in England, I beg your pardon, and has Stevenson in England, has George MacDonald in England, has uh, Barry in England. You know, mm. okay, don't mind if you label them British, but I do kind of have a wee thing about that. But it's also about where authors see themselves. Mm. And, and again, it's that thing about, do they see themselves as children's writers? Do they see themselves as writers? And I would argue probably in the main, they would label themselves as writers. And sometimes it's an editor or a publisher that says, you're a children's writer, because they're thinking of a target market. Apart from the medium itself, Maureen, is there something that sets children's literature apart from other forms of storytelling, such as gaming or performance? I think it used to be quite separate. I think what's interesting is the way things are changing now. I'm thinking particularly of gaming and I'm thinking particularly of ebooks. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly here of things like um, interactive ebooks. I, again, had a, a student who, who did a PhD looking at interactive picture books on iPads mm. and looking at what 
the different, you know. So when we look at a picture book, we, we know that the text and the pictures can work mimetically. The text, can, the picture can show exactly what's in the text or the, it can show part of what's in the text or it can be completely different from what is in the text. And you've got to read both the picture and the text to get the full story. What's interesting with ebooks is that because of the way technology works, you can do other things with, with technology. So you can create hotspots in an illustration. So if you tap on the hotspot, you get butterflies that fly out, or you get, um, there's a Winnie the Pooh where you've got, if you tap the, the beehive, the bees buzz out and, and all that, you get sound effects, you get music. So you get additional elements to the story. And when she was writing up her PhD, in order to write it up, because there was no language for this in children's literature, she had to go to gaming. Because it was in gaming that there was the, the kind of critical language that you had to use about levels and about, you know, levels of complexity and how animations changed and things like that. And also, if you look at fantasy games or, you know, these adventure games where you are questing. RPGs, RPGs, you know, yeah, 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 that's right. games. Uh, yeah, well, you get these RPGs where you get, and, and remember, quest fantasy is a genre of fantasy, but you get these quest games. Mm -hmm. So you've got really parallel things. And so to some extent, maybe what you've got is people coming into gaming who've read fantasy literature and who understand what a magical object is and what a secret passageway is and whatever the rest of it. And then you've got people who do gaming and enjoy that and maybe move into looking at some of the literature. Now, I think it will, I think it will probably depend on which one you encounter first. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think that the boundaries between children's literature as being book bound only are blurring. Uh, I think you get it with... Uh, audiobooks, I think you get it with um, uh, books that come, for example, picture books that come with CDs to, to play along with what you're, what you're doing. Uh, then you get the online, uh, you get fan fiction. That's another really interesting development because you've got people who've read the original books and there's Harry Potter fan fiction to the wazoo. You know, it's huge. Um, and there's people who write their own versions of it. There's people who rewrite the versions of it. There's people who write Harry Potter fan fiction as Harry Potter, older person. You get the minor characters doing it. You get it done from the perspective of, you know, different uh, dark characters. You get all of these things. And then you get people building on that kind of thing. So what starts as a, as a, a material book, a standard book that we, that we hold in our hands and we turn the pages turns into an electronic medium. And so I think that's what I mean when I say that the boundaries are becoming more porous. I think children's literature, book-bound children's literature still exists. And I think it always will because I think that, I think particularly things like picture books become even better and more sophisticated with time. And I think they, I think they are much more than a, a craft. I think they are an art. I think they're an art form and I think they will always exist but they are now being produced also in electronic versions so you can look at them if you don't have the actual I mean I couldn't have taught some of my classes during this lockdown period mm. if I hadn't been able to access some of the materials online 
you know, go to YouTube with people reading the books to let people see the books and hear the books or show images, you know, that are, are, are available on um, publishing websites and stuff like that. Because I don't have all my hard copies of the books are in my office, which I can't get into. And so I, I found that if I hadn't had the electronic medium to help me teach about standard children's literature, I would have been stumped at this particular point in time. So I think there will always be a specific material version of children's literature, hard copy books that people keep and sometimes pass down from family member to family member, grandparent to grandchild, that sort of thing. But I think that increasingly we will be seeing children's literature across genres, across platforms, across modes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I know you were co-editing the International Companion to Scottish Children's Literature. How is that going? Well, uh, it's been going, it, it went very well at the beginning. We had a lot of people um, respond to things very quickly. We hit a snag and we wanted uh, someone to write a section on Scottish children's poetry. And there was a person that, a very, very um, senior academic that we wanted to do. And unfortunately, she became unwell after having started it and was ill for some considerable time. And she kept saying, I'll come back to it, I'll come back to it. Didn't happen. We equally had been asked to try and include a section on Gaelic children's literature. Mm. We could not find anyone to write that. And believe me, we searched. We uh, we thought we had someone from Edinburgh University. Never happened. So that chapter, we've actually had to abandon that chapter. And I've got someone now um, taking up the, the Scottish poetry chapter. So that's, that's happening. But we've already got material on Scottish children's literature generally. We've got a chapter on Scottish children's fantasy, Scottish children's historical fiction, Scottish, uh, we've got a chapter on Robert Louis Stevenson. We've got a chapter on uh, Molly Hunter, one of the best known Scottish children's writers and a really g a gigantic figure. And we wanted to have a chapter on her work alone. We've got a chapter on Scottish uh, picture books. And we've got a, a chapter on uh, Scottish children's prize winning books. So p things that have won the Carnegie Medal and stuff like that. So those are, and, and a young adult chapter as well. Um, so most of those are in the bag. Uh, we're just trying to finish up the, the poetry one. And uh, we've got one chapter that we had to kind of leave till we had everything, which is a kind of overview, a kind of, well, where are we now? And in a sense, we couldn't write that till we had all the other chapters. So that's actually the one that's now the next kind of one on our list. We're hoping to have it in pretty soon. It's been on the cards for quite a long time, but as I say, there's been a few major hiccups along the way, but we're, we're nearly there. So I'm, I'm pleased about that. Uh, do you have any other projects in the works? Yeah, well, it's really interesting um, that you ask that because something came up yesterday, and this is kind of really odd. I used Twitter because I originally started because the university said we had to. <laughs> um, but I, I do use Twitter and various, uh, I, I follow particular people, and you heard me mention earlier on Professor Teresa Kremen from the Open University, and something popped up on my Twitter feed, and uh, one of the, the things that they do is in the, their newsletters, they publish what they call examples of practice, and some colleagues from Wales have done a big input about Welsh children's literature, 
And Teresa tweeted about it and then said, you know, put my name, you know, my Twitter handle, which is at Dr. Mo 28 and said, what about it at Dr. Mo 28 you know, and, and she named a couple of other people. And I came back to her and said, well, I wouldn't mind having a go, but it won't be the same as the thing that that other person. And before I knew it, I had hundreds of replies going, I would read that, I would read that, I would read that. So I seem to have backed myself into a corner here. And I'm now uh, going to have to do, um, I'm going to have to write up uh, a bit about how I use Scottish children's literature, particularly with um, student teachers and how I build it into the, the classes. So I'll need to set my mind to that and think about how and when I can get that done. And I'm hoping to maybe persuade some of my students to also help me with the contribution. So it'd be quite good to get their perspective, both as recipients of the teaching and also as classroom practitioners using it in the classroom. Dr. Maureen Farrell, we're running out of time. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Maybe you'll ask me again sometime. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. Thank you. 